shipping has multiple benefits because you can learn about the outcome afterwards. That's like the key takeaway in life. Ship something, learn, ship something again. Hey, this is Kirill Nagornik, and you're listening to the UX Objective Podcast, the show for SaaS founders, designers, and product people. Today, our guest is Jane Portman, a design consultant, co-founder of UserList, host of two shows, author of three books, and mom of three kids. And we're going to speak about better done than perfect mindset. Hey, Jane, I'm very happy to have you on the very first episode of UX Objective Podcast. Hey, Kirill, thanks for having me. Uh, congrats on the new show. Very, very honored to be the first guest. You call yourself a recovering perfectionist. And sometimes perfectionism goes as a good thing in design community. People talk about pixel-perfect portfolios or icons. What is your personal definition of perfectionism, Jane? If we talk about perfectionism as a, as a negative thing, as a deviation, then it probably means... Um, polishing the details to the level that it obstructs your uh, moving forward with this. Um, and there is, a, there is no hard line, of course, between high standards and uh, polishing something to unnecessary perfection. Um, but the ultimate idea is that if we consider this a bad thing, then um, yes, uh, it is polishing something to, to the unnecessary limit. And the hard thing here is that you think that you know that standard that you're polishing it to, and somehow you consider yourself the ultimate authority, but you're probably not right. There are different standard levels, and the typical like consumer level is much lower, and there is probably uh, another level of an expert that uh, is above you, and you can never achieve it anyways. So why struggle as hard if something is done 95% that it probably uh, makes sense to just ship it? Shipping has multiple benefits because you can learn about the outcome afterwards. That's like the key takeaway in life. Ship something, learn, ship something again. Can we say that designers are falling into the trap of negative perfectionism when they look up to some designers who are one or several levels above them and then trying to pursue the same level of, of the same quality of design? And since they cannot reach that quality yet, they just keep endlessly polishing the design and never ship it. I think it's so much different from one person to another. Um, sometimes you you know the standards well. Sometimes you don't know what you don't know. And uh, just in general, looking up to other designers is amazing, but uh, it can also be a great source of depression. <laughs> I try to always look at design as a means of solving uh, business problems. And for business problems, um, it's much more practical. And especially when you move from, you know, being like an abstract designer to, uh, to consulting and solving business problems for your clients. And then you move on to building your own products. And then you, like, my ultimate goal was to run a SaaS. And we do. Uh, and when you run your own SaaS, you always have limited resources. So it's just absolutely impossible to keep the entire product and the surrounding ecosystem in the perfect state. That's when like the reality check happens. And you just understand that it's impossible to, 
to achieve what you think is perfect. Mm -hmm. So basically, the idea here is that at some point you need to ground yourself and see what is actually practical, what is what are the priorities right now, and what will make effect in what you're doing, rather than trying to achieve some ideal state of design, ideal state of, I don't know, yeah. Is that the key? Yes, absolutely. And the whole professional journey, the product journey, the consulting journey is all about learning. And you can only learn when you deliver something. And the truth is, you are doing something new all the time. You are learning new skills all the time. And there is no way in the universe you can get something right from the first go, even if you hire like experts and if you're an expert yourself. So just shipping something that you consider fine is fine in most times and you can just move on to the next uh, available task and there is always plenty. I guess that's why we're making this very first episode not in the ideal setting. I'm recording it in my house. It's not a studio recording or anything like that. So Echo here in the room is massive. So I had to put down various blankets on the floor, open <laughs> the doors of the wardrobe so that Echo would be reduced. My chair is making strange sounds as well. My accent is not perfect, but I decided just to make a first shot, ship it and learn from it. I'm absolutely excited for you making this first step because 90% of people don't make it to this first step. It's scary. They never think that they're going to get it right, you know, but they are not going to get it right, like from the first go. So, yeah, I like this quote by Salvador Dali. He says, uh, you should have no fear of perfection. You'll never reach it. Yes, <laughs> I could not agree more. Yeah, yeah, you know this one? You heard it? Um, actually I might have, but never have fully digested it. It's super timely. Thanks for quoting that. Can you tell me about the day when you realized that perfectionism is something that holds you back from doing what you should be doing? There was no like, uh, overnight insight there. It's just that over, over the years, when you not only design something, but you see your you know, design uh, work being brought into life as a live product, the only way to stay sane and uh, avoid like, complete frustration is to start to be more accepting, uh, lowering the bar to, to, to match reality. And over the years, it just... I just learned to uh, accept imperfections, even though there's still things that uh, we're maintaining high bar of that we could probably be doing less. Uh, for example, when we publish content at UserList these days, we have a pretty rigid publishing process, which includes multiple, multiple checks, and we try to really make it work, whereas we could be just shipping what our you know, copywriter delivers and, and call it a day, but we do like two rounds of edits instead. Um, but when I'm doing that final round of edits, I'm really not as picky anymore because there is no perfect way of doing it. There is just a way of shipping something. And uh, working with design, working with copy, and uh, I might be sort of cursed in a way because not only I have pretty sharp eye when it comes to, you know, margins, little design details and stuff. But also, I think I have a talent of just finding typos anywhere, including the most prestigi uh, prestigious, like, uh, offline type magazines. I can, like, open a Vogue 
and to find a typo, even though they have like an army of copy uh, editors, uh, it just stands out. Uh, definitely not everybody <laughs> is blessed with that. <laughs> so, um, but but you know, being more taller, tolerant, and stuff. When when somebody embarks on their design career, they go around their city and they see, you know, a car wash, a um, uh, food store. Uh, there's so much imperfect design out there. Nonetheless, these businesses are up and running because they're solving certain problems. And when you're a young designer, you think, oh my goodness, how this word can be so ugly. You know, everything is so bad. Why can't they just hire a designer? Why then just can just hire me? You know, um, <laughs> one of the earlier revelations for me when I was, you know, like 20 years ago working. So no, 20 might be an over uh, exaggeration, but I've been in design since 2000 three no 2004 so um actually working in client projects so in the very early student days i would be doing packaging and other stuff not not just ux and i discovered that marketers mm, intentionally downplay the packaging so it doesn't look intimidating like in my books everything should be clean minimal and like upscale but no in real world sometimes you would even downplay the quality and uh, and the design looks so that uh less uh let's say economy class audience could 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 feel that this is relevant to them and not be afraid to just look at this like i don't know premium wall paint shouldn't look premium look wall paint should look premium but there should be also like democ uh, democratic pricing wall paint which should not look premium and it was such a revelation for me in the old days yeah you just gave a very nice example of using a design to solve business problems Another example that comes to my mind is uh, Lidl, the grocery shop. These guys, they definitely have enough cash to hire top-level designers and make it all look premium. But their strategy is different. Their target audience is different. And if it would look premium, those people who are they trying to attract, they wouldn't come if the shop would look like uh, Marks and Spencer. <laughs> Probably so. Yeah, they don't look like Apple stores, indeed. Before UserList, you founded another SaaS project, which was called Tiny Reminder, and it failed. Do you think it's somehow related to perfectionism, or it was another reason for that? Uh, it was definitely not perfectionism why it failed. It was complete lack of product market fit. So uh, Tiny Reminder was a pretty generic productivity tool it was helpful at heart but i didn't have a clear use case in mind so it was just like a form builder with reminders um and it could serve different purposes but i didn't have a certain audience in mind and it was not um not really an important tool for anybody so it hang uh just stayed out there for a year Premium. We gathered a number of users, but the conversions to paid were like minuscule. And I just, mm, I just learned so many lessons, you know, in this way. Um, and when you say perfectionism, uh, it was definitely not perfectionism. Um, more, moreover, uh, my current co-founder Benedict was um, my developer for hire for that project. So I actually paid him cash to, to build the product. And that was an amazing limiting factor for like stopping that perfectionism <laughs> from, um, from developing because there was a hard 
stop there in terms of monetary resource. But in a good sense, we had a chance to work with my co-founder, and that's exactly how I learned that he's a good, uh, he's a great person and nice to work with, and also a talented developer. Do you think that in-house designers they are more prone to fall into the perfectionism because they are not directly spending a company's cash, or at least they don't see how it's being spent? Uh, versus your situation where he was responsible for the budget of your project and you were spent Benedict literally from your pocket. It's hard to say that uh, perfectionism is necessarily bad because when we do ship products, uh, for example, an in-house designer designs something and then works with the developer to make it into like a part of the commercial project. Um, we are also responsible for um, for the polish and for the quality of it. And there should be no cutting corners when it comes to implementation and polishing little design details because those little design details do exactly communicate quality. And if you cut corners there, you're going to end up with some sort of half-baked design, which is not great. And um, the way to solve that is to make... Uh, reusable components, um, design systems, anything like that where you can polish once and then use that uh, result across uh, many situations. And even if if you're a designer for hire, you still want to make your boss happy by solving their problem in a decent like time frame. Um, and so that you're not obsessed over designy details but you're still providing quality so there is a balance there and the better your own you know ratio of quality versus time versus uh outcomes um the better you are appreciated as a professional ultimately because it's not just your only opportunity you're probably going to be moving from one company to another and just having some sort of reputation or um the way you're uh, boss, your maybe design lead, or your um, the company founder sees you. That's why project managers are there, because they can help designers to be aware of what's going on on their higher level within the company, and help those designers to actually align with the timelines, with the goals of the entire team they are part of. Definitely so. Before uh, embarking on the solo career, I had actually a career within a company and I grew into a creative director managing other designers. And I was young and naive and super picky. We would polish their work to death. I would probably be much more um, liberal these days. But um, yeah, maybe it was not, not that bad for the company. I never really felt that it was a strain of resources, not in the way I see resources now, you know, as in like actual money paid to people, etc. The only constraint I saw was probably deadlines. And it's amazing how people for hire see different compared to people who <laughs> dispense those resources out of the company's pocket. How can we understand that something is good enough to be shipped for the purpose and um, that any other improvements on this feature or design are absolutely unnecessary. Of course, it's subjective. Uh, but if you think about that perfect state that you're striving for, uh, you can then mentally lower it by 
I don't know, 10, 20%, whatever you consider necessary. And just try to make that adjustment from your own judgment to the judgment of the potential audience who will be using your product, not from the standpoint of design perfection, but from the standpoint of it being a tool. And if that doesn't worsen their experience um, and it doesn't obstruct their problem from being solved, then it's probably fine to be shipped, even if it doesn't satisfy your own design taste 100%. But of course, if you're developing a design system if, uh, that will be reused for three years, then it might make sense to polish it a bit more. Um, but yeah, there should be balance somewhere. and just. Be aware that regular people are not as design sensitive as are as designers. That's why it's so important to actually um, test it with the users to get some feedback and see whether it solves their problem or not. What you're trying to pursue with the, with the design is just your personal obsession and maybe it's already solving the customer's problems and it's done. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. When I was a consultant, my favorite clients were, were products that would achieve success in spite of having like completely bad design. Like it was good enough to solve the problem. It was totally not great in terms of aesthetics. And that's when, you know, UX improvements and design improvements can truly make it shine. While in return, vice versa, I, I have seen many pro products that are beautiful, but are not financially successful. And moreover, I have run products in such situations so like great design is not definitely not the only success factor and you should accept that. i agree i liked uh, one of your expressions where you said i don't remember where i read it maybe on your blog or something uh you said that the copy is the king despite being a designer you said it's much more important to actually get the copyright and then if it's has a good design if it's beautifully presented it's like an icing on the top it makes it much better but actually the copy sells your product not the beautiful pictures or icons or styling or drop shadows anything like that definitely copy is the foundation and words have much more power over the visuals especially if you like um have decent design design doesn't have to be perfect but Copy doesn't have to be perfect either, but it matters more. It communicates your value proposition more than the visuals. Visuals are merely the supporting medium most times. There are examples of websites which do not look contemporary or stylish. Something that comes to my mind is the Kai Davis or Jonathan Stark websites. But their copy is done so nicely that you want to buy from them immediately. It's not just the copy, it's that they're solving the problem that you need solution for. They're, their copy resonates with you, that's the most important thing. The copy doesn't exist in vacuum either. The next thing I want to ask you is, who inspired you to embrace better done than perfect mindset? Did you read a book, watch a video, or meet somebody? I can't say that I've been particularly observing other people talk about this. Um, it's more of a like of a function of of, of experience, I think, and uh, actual years served in the industry. <laughs> because when you just grow older, wiser, and more pessimistic, you just uh, become more you know realistic about things, and that's when um, you deal with your perfectionist better. And uh, there's just more common sense in the way you ship your work, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so I can't really say. Uh, there, there are some people that have influenced my uh, product thinking a lot. And some of them are Amy Hoy and Alex Hillman's um, sales safari method for developing products. They help you to, you know, ground your products in research instead of your ideas. Um, Joanna Weeb's copy hackers uh, classes and courses were one of my earliest. Uh, bought books about how to write they were great definitely um i would say these people as thought leaders are were really influential in the old days one day you posted a picture on the instagram it was a tattoo on your wrist it was a acronym for better done than perfect bdtp do your kids ask what does it mean and what do you tell them about it <laughs> Uh, it's not just the it's not just the kids who ask about it. <laughs> um, yeah. This tattoo is about one year old, and uh, it's so the idea behind that is very very meta, because I have been contemplating some sort of tattoo for a couple years, uh, but but then I learned that a proper nice big tattoo that I wanted was very expensive and I had to go to back to the tattoo artist like three times and I wasn't happy about it. So I just delayed this whole tattoo project until last year. Um, this was brought to my mind again and uh, I was like, mm, maybe I should do, you know, a small version of that to, to, to test the waters. And uh, in the sense of this better than the perfect spirit, uh, and then it kind of crystallized itself that it should actually also say BDTP itself <laughs> to make it super meta. And and so I, I went forward and had it, uh, which which was great because I felt how, you know, having it a two feels like on a daily basis, what the process looks like. And I'm just so, so much more versed in this process than I was before doing it. It's like taking this leap from zero to one doesn't have to be the full-blown thing it has can be something small when the risk is uh, risk is small and everything it also reflects the principle that we live by so it's kind of awesome to have it on my wrist at all times like uh yeah uh alex hillman has a jfdi just uh, just uh freaking do it <laughs> on his uh it's much bigger and bolder it's much bigger and bolder I believe it wasn't a full back tattoo you was contemplating of. No, just uh, I have I have I have strange design taste, so I I was planning for some you know smoke like watercolor on my entire upper arm, and that just that's a lot of design work um, for the uh, that's a lot of work for the tattoo artist. That's what I was like. I didn't plan to have letters across my back. No, <laughs> but just just a bigger piece, you know. What do you tell your kids when they ask what's on your wrist? <laughs> the older boys are um, eight and nine. So I did tell them about the story. And uh, we also talked about, you know, having a tattoo as a thing. Because uh, they're kind of like, whoa, this is, this is permanent. Like, you're not scared, mommy. <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> while the younger one is just three years old, so she doesn't really understand much. And so... She asks me, what is it? And I'm saying, yeah, this is a tattoo. And why? I'm saying because it's, you know, it's it's nice and beautiful. And when she asks, what what does it say? I say, 
BDTP and she says PPPP. And yeah, that's the end of the discussion there <laughs> for her. But yeah, she'll know that uh, it's it's acceptable to have a tattoo and uh, maybe it will make them make better choices, not just treat us as complete conservatives. Let's see. It's going to be exciting when they become teenagers. Yeah, I remember earlier in this conversation, you mentioned that when you're young and naive, you're trying to pursue that perfection. But as you grow older, you become more pessimistic and <laughs> realistic. So I imagine your kids, when they start to get more life experience, they go to school, college, then they go to work and they'll grow this realization that that it's better get things done than wait for perfect. I hope they will, but that will be like ages from now because at the moment <laughs> it's just so interesting to watch them grow and it's uh, seeing them do their homework, they're really far away from being a perfectionist. <laughs> so I don't think they're really suffering from that. Jane, our dedicated time for this episode is running out and I'd like to thank you for coming up today and sharing your experience. I was very, very happy to learn from you. And my last question is, where can people find you online? My personal website and podcast is at uibreakfast.com. And uh, if you want to see the business baby of us, um, this is userlist.com, the email automation software for SaaS companies. You can always also find me on Twitter at uibreakfast hope we can connect there. Thank you. It was so nice to have you, Jane. Absolutely. Thanks for having me too.